This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Among the weaknesses exposed by the sudden onset of the novel coronavirus has been the inability of our healthcare system to adapt to the new challenges of an epidemic. Hubwonk listeners will know this podcast has explored how our vibrant entrepreneurial community has delivered innovations using artificial intelligence, comprehensive telemedicine services, and new batteries of testing capabilities. Unfortunately, many potential newcomers to the healthcare field are discouraged by the existence of so-called determination of need or certificate of need laws. Determination of need laws require new participants in the healthcare field to ask permission from the state government to add additional services to the system. Astonishingly, that permission is granted only after the review of the existing firms. These firms then have the prerogative to deem the new competition unnecessary. My guest today is Jamie Cavanaugh from the Institute for Justice, a public advocacy law firm that has just released a new report called Conning the Competition, a nationwide survey of certificate of need laws. Jamie has researched the contours of con laws across the country and is here to discuss how such laws serve to limit innovation and capacity, keep costs high, and actually serve to reduce the quality of service delivered. Joining me from Pioneer Institute is Josh Archambault, Senior Healthcare Fellow. Josh researches ways to improve healthcare efficiency and is here to share his deep understanding of con laws here in Massachusetts. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be back, Joe. Josh, I give you all the credit with educating me on the existence of certificate of need laws. Uh, This was even before the COVID-19 epidemic, uh, but perhaps then it was more of an academic or wonky kind of topic. Now with COVID-19 and uh, the need to react and be more flexible with our response, this has almost become a political question. That is, politicians want our system to be more flexible and are perhaps re-examining the existence of con laws. Well, yeah, there's been a lot of bipartisan uh, attention uh, from governors in particular with executive orders changing their certificate of need or determination of need loss, sometimes suspending them, putting through expedited reviews for them because they were concerned that the healthcare system wasn't flexible enough to respond to COVID. So there's been a lot of attention. It doesn't get a lot of headlines, uh, but in the policy world, Uh, When it comes to thinking about how and whether we're able to respond to a pandemic, it has gotten a lot more attention than it has in the last couple decades. So we're going to go into the show deeply uh, with Jamie in a a short while. But basically, we're talking about laws that constrain the ability of new new participants in the system to get in and, and adapt to the needs of, let's say, a pandemic. Do I have that right? Yep, it's basically a permission slip granted by a government agency on whether you can add new beds, you can use new equipment, just a permission slip to be able to do something in healthcare. Uh, I look, uh, after the music break, I will be joined by Jamie Cavanaugh from the Institute for Justice. Okay, we're back. Uh, this is Joe Salvaggi and Hubwonk. Uh, I'm joined by Josh Archambault, and now joining the show is Jamie Cavanaugh from the Institute for Justice. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. Okay, for the benefit of our listeners, let's start at the beginning and talk uh, about 
what we're going to call con laws or don laws, certificate of need. Okay. Um, what are con laws? Where did they come from? When did they start? Uh, really, what was the idea behind them when they were first created? So a con law, a certificate of need law, is a government-mandated permission slip to start or expand a business. So to get a certificate of need, newcomers must prove to the government, but not potential customers, that a need exists for their service. So often at the Institute for Justice, we tell this story, we use an example about restaurants. If you had a hamburger recipe and you wanted to go open up shop, um, you know, in a lot of towns, you could just go ahead and rent commercial space. Sure, you might have to get some permits, but you could go out and you could start your business. Um, in the healthcare field, unfortunately, it's just not that straightforward. A lot of times you have to go prove to the government, even if you know there's a service that really needs to be provided, or even if you have a brand new idea sometimes. Um, for an innovative service. You have to go prove to the government that there's a need for this service. And then the thing that really is um, impossible most of the time to overcome is that there's this built-in competitor's veto. So in the restaurant analogy, that would be like if Burger King and McDonald's and all of the chains with all of their money got to come in and say, we, we already serve enough hamburgers to this town and we don't need any more hamburgers here. Um, there's just no need. The customers are are happy with what we're offering them, and we'll speak for them. We'll say that there's enough hamburgers here in this city. So I like your example about the hamburgers, uh, although I don't imagine there could ever be too many hamburgers, but let's accept that that's such something like that could exist. So if I understand it correctly, uh, before I can open up something or expand something in the healthcare field, I need to ask my competitors for permission and, in fact, say to my competitors, uh, should there be additional competition? Yes, exactly. And so, of course, the hospitals and the existing providers love this feature of certificate of need laws, or as you mentioned, determination of need laws, Don, Don laws, as they're called in Massachusetts. So hospitals are the biggest proponents of these types of laws. And unfortunately, patients are the ones who suffer from the reduced access to new services or new facilities. Uh, now, the Institute of Justice or for Justice um, is a nationwide uh, uh, public advocacy firm. Uh, we're in Massachusetts, and uh, I'm curious how uh, other states, you know, how many states have these laws? Are we good, bad, ugly? Where, where do we fit in the whole constellation of con, or in this case, it's determination of the Don laws? How do we uh, shake out as far as uh, Don law uh, on the books here? So let me start kind of broadly, and um, of course, Massachusetts Don program is the functional equivalent of what we refer to as the CON programs for most of the other states. Um, so across the country today, 35 states and DC have CON laws, and then an additional three states, Arizona, Minnesota, and Wisconsin have quasi-CON programs. So that's a total of 39 jurisdictions that have some sort of CON rules on the books. Um, Massachusetts has 22 specific Don requirements, and the way that we, um, the Institute for Justice, kind of broke down its research when we did this report that just came out, um, we broke down the types of cons into six different categories, and Massachusetts has um, 
dons in all six categories. And that's kind of rare. Only eight states have dons in all six categories. So uh, uh, Massachusetts isn't uh, wrapped itself in glory as far as these laws go. I want to bring into the conversation uh, Josh Archambault. Uh, I know you think and research quite deeply in this area. Uh, what else can you tell us about, in this case, determination of need? What Don laws look like here in Massachusetts? Yeah, this is really one of the debates in Massachusetts that doesn't get a lot of attention outside of the industry. And, and as it was mentioned, Jamie mentioned, it's really the hospitals and, and others, incumbent providers who, who are aware of this and have lawyers who are very aware of this. But the legislature has been active in this space in the last few years. There are some special interest groups that come in and occasionally try to tweak the laws. In fact, they strengthened them a number of years ago, added additional regulations. Now, of course, COVID-19, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about this, has changed this discussion pretty dramatically. But unfortunately, there's some arguments being made uh, for why we need to strengthen regulation that just don't aren't in touch with basic economics or even what the need of the market is. And just to highlight, put a fine point on that, Joe, Massachusetts does have big, well-known hospital systems. And part of the reason that is, is one, they're great. And two, they keep out a lot of their competition um, by going through this process. And unfortunately, patients and small businesses in Massachusetts pay the price for that. That's one of the reasons that we pay some of the highest health insurance premiums in the entire country. And wait, lists, or wait times, excuse me, for appointments are quite high. So I do want to talk a little bit more about the COVID effect, meaning we, if we have a constraint on supply, which clearly Don laws seem to be, what, what do you imagine would look different? Uh, Jamie alluded to the fact that there are six categories of Don laws in Massachusetts. Um, I read in her report a lot of mentions of ICU beds, which would have come up perhaps during COVID. But what areas, and I'll open that up either to Jamie or to Josh, what other areas would we see different? Uh, what would the landscape look like without these Don laws in your view? Yeah, I think I'll start and happy to have Jamie and her and her colleagues deserve a ton of credit for putting a lot of time and effort into their report to put this together to see where your state compares to others. I think really what we're talking about is just to think very practically. You know, I've had a chance to talk to a number of price transparency companies. And one of the things that they remark to me is you can look at the state border between states that have con laws and those that don't, and they can see a price difference. Uh, they can also see an access difference, that patients in the non-con states usually have more options and they pay less. And that's a, you know, as you think about basic economics, a lot of people think it doesn't apply to healthcare, but there are elements here, even with our third payer party insurance system, as wacky as that is, in which basic economics still applies. And so if Massachusetts were to phase out or repeal some of its DON laws, we would have more options and patients would pay less. It's that simple. Jamie, does your research, and you've got, you, you're doing this research nationwide, does it uh, jive with what Josh has just said? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's also some research out of the Mercatus Center by Matt Mitchell and his other um, co-authors and co-researchers that says non-con or non-states um, have more hospitals per capita, have more hospital beds per capita, have more dialysis centers have more surgery centers. So, um, you know, that's the exact thing that, that Josh is talking about, and they've quantified that in a scientific way. Um, I would give some more specific example, 
examples, I think you would see more imaging centers in Massachusetts. Um, I think you would see more surgery centers in Massachusetts. And that's an interesting thing to talk about in today's world. Um, maybe people who need surgeries don't want to go to a hospital for those surgeries. You talked about the big hospital systems. And of course, they want to limit competition from imaging centers or surgery centers. But now as we rethink the world, you know, after the pandemic or during the pandemic, actually having smaller centers where people can go instead of always having to go to the hospital where you're going to be exposed, unfortunately, to just more people and possibly more, more germs, um, that would be better for everyone and for the community. So frequent listeners of Hubwalk know that's a common theme, a recurring theme here. Uh, we talked about particularly during COVID, uh, people staying away from hospitals and not getting the care they need, largely because they have concerns about being infected in a large setting. So uh, that resonates well with our listeners. But I want to get back to basic economics and say uh, no one should be surprised that when you can constrain supply, that both uh, the amount of options, the number of options you have goes down by design, and prices go up. That should come as no surprise to anyone. Uh, for those who advocate for these laws, uh, besides the naked desire to limit competition, what justification do they provide for any real benefit of these laws? I want to acknowledge people may have a different point of view. What do the advocates of Khan or Don laws uh, say they provide? So the initial justifications were that con laws would increase access to care um, and that this type of centralized planning would ensure um, appropriate geographic distribution and that con laws could increase the quality of healthcare services and that somehow con laws would decrease the cost of healthcare services. These were the main justifications offered when con laws were first adopted in the 60s and 70s. Um, and those justifications have all since been debunked. I think the geographic distribution still gets a lot of traction with proponents of con laws today. Um, but one interesting thing that our report finds is that um, some states like Nevada only require cons in rural areas and other states do the exact opposite. Kentucky, um, Oregon, Washington, have exemptions and don't require any cons in rural areas. So um, this thing about geographic distribution and worrying that without con laws, hospitals or medical services just won't be available in rural areas, that argument kind of goes out the window when we see that even states with con laws do you know, treat rural areas in the exact opposite way. And Joe, I did want to just hop in here. What's interesting, covered in the report and also in other reports, is two things. A little bit of the history of CON. And it's important to remember that the federal government actually played a role in CON in the past and then reversed course, which doesn't happen very often in almost any policy area, let alone healthcare. Um, so the fact that they reversed course speaks to the debunking that has happened over the last couple of decades going forward. In fact, the FTC will frequently show up in states and argue, against, argue for repeal of CON laws because of the anti-competitive nature for them. The other thing I, I just want to mention from a practical standpoint is there's been some really good academic studies looking at how con laws actually decrease the quality of care that's delivered to patients. So, you know, there's a number of theories why this is. Could be a competition theory, could be a volume theory, 
But there is more than just price, a practical ramification for patients in which outcomes are worse in many cases. And so this matters. You know, it's not a sexy topic. It's deep in the policy weeds, but there are very practical implications for this. And just wanted to highlight that as hoping that states get a little bit more informed about this as they're deciding on what they should do with their CON laws going forward. Yeah, yes, I'm surprised that among the, the um, reasons um, con law advocates provide is an equality question. In fact, what you're saying is the exact opposite effect. It, has, it lowers quality, which those of us who are fans of competition might, might expect. Um, do you want to add any more color to that idea, Jamie? Did you find substantial differences in quality with Don and con laws across the country uh, that you can measure? So the report um, doesn't do any new research on that topic, but we rely on the existing research. And there are dozens of peer-reviewed journal studies that find all of the things we've just been talking about, cost increase, quality decreases when in states that have con laws. So I would so, echo exactly what Josh said. So Josh pointed to the fact that even the federal government had figured out these are bad ideas, right? So they've helped uh, your, you know, our, this cause in many of the states. Now, Institute for Justice is a public advocacy law firm, right? You, you do uh, bring these cases to the courts. Um, I know you had some success in a recent in Kentucky. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that and see if it might shed light on you know, perhaps our own, if, if it gets around to Massachusetts, uh, what, what the determination was there. Sure, yeah, this was a wonderful ruling from a judge in federal court in Kentucky. Um, the case there is a is two um, Nepali-speaking immigrants wanted to open a small home health agency to serve the Nepali-speaking community in Louisville, which is actually very sizable. And of course, their competitors said, we are handling all the home health needs of the community, um, but they're not. They don't offer any services in the Nepali language. Um, but the government said, no, we're not letting this small agency open. It could cause the existing agencies to go out of business. And so Institute for Justice is representing the entrepreneurs, the medical entrepreneurs who say there's absolutely a need for this service. Um, the ruling that we got in Kentucky is just a, it's just in the initial steps, we survived a motion to dismiss, which means the case will continue, but we got a really wonderful, fiery opinion from um, Judge Justin Walker, and he recognized that if con that con laws are not doing what the government says that they're doing. He said, he pointed out all the things we just pointed out. The federal government has disavowed them for decades. All of the academic research about con laws says that they're not accomplishing any of their goals. And if that's the case, then why else would these laws still exist? And he says, courts shouldn't be afraid to say they probably exist um, for this protectionist reason to protect hospitals from competition. It's probably hospitals that have um, gone to the legislature and said, we need to keep these laws on the books, even if there's all these other you know, harms that the laws are ca causing. And it's really wonderful to see a judge engaging with um, the facts like this, a lot of times, judges, and he didn't have to go that far in his opinion, but it's wonderful to see a judge engaging and, and you know, saying that this is exactly what it looks like. So it probably is that hospitals are benefiting from these laws. And that's probably why they continue to exist in so many states today. So I, I think you see where this conversation is going. We see that we can mutually agree these are probably bad ideas. How many states have no con laws? 
There are a dozen states today without con laws, but those states include California, Texas, uh, Colorado, Pennsylvania. It's about 40% of the nation's population that live in states without con laws. So 40% have no con laws. Unfortunately, the other 38 states have the other 60% and do have con laws. Right, yeah. So we're in Massachusetts. Um, uh, Josh, I'm going to look for your guidance here. What would it take... um, for those kinds of changes for us to join the 12 with no con laws? Is, is that like uh, moving a mountain or uh, it's just something uh, well-meaning legislators just haven't gotten around to yet? Well, I, I think there's probably a couple phases to this discussion in the state. You know, I think the first one is related to COVID-19. You know, the Department of Public Health did uh, move to change and put in place an expedited review for con uh, or determination of need applications going forward. So I think the first uh, conversation is what happened as a result of that? Um, can we see how many people put uh, requests through and how long did it actually take and, and did the sky fall? And uh, I think most of us believe the sky didn't fall uh, and won't fall as a result of that expedited review. And so then at that point, I think is a, a discussion that needs to happen in the legislature. I will say I am not overly optimistic in a state like Massachusetts for significant change for a couple of reasons. One is there is a deep misunderstanding of what this is in the legislature. When you talk to staff and members, they typically think the direct opposite of what we've been discussing, that it increases quality, that it somehow lowers costs and decreases spending. So there's a huge education curve that needs to, to go up. I think the other challenge is that there's a lot of folks on Beacon Hill who are advocating for more central planning. So whether that's Medicare for all, Medicaid for all, whatever it is, perhaps slightly more of a um, a political conversation, uh, but that's what they're pushing for in the state legislature. And I think it's difficult to have a conversation about changing a bureaucratic process when it's really an ideological conversation of do we move towards more of a government central role in planning in healthcare or do we move the opposite direction? So I, I don't think the legislative process is the way to go here. But interestingly, around the country, I am aware and be curious to hear Jamie's thoughts on this. I mean, the state of New Hampshire repealed their con laws a couple of years ago. The state of Florida is phasing out a number of their con laws. Jamie, with with the court case in Kentucky and some of this legislative action, what do you think is the future here on this in these states? Are we seeing legislative momentum in other places? Is it going to be a case where this is going to play out in the courts? What do you see going forward? Well, you just mentioned how um, Massachusetts took steps to um, expedite done review. And in fact, um, 24 states plus DC did that in response to COVID. So this signals a huge change, right, in how states are looking at certificate of need programs. They saw it as a barrier to response to the pandemic. Um, So I'm hoping, and Institute for Justice is hoping that there is some kind of political shift now in, um, in how lawmakers are viewing con programs, but we wholeheartedly agree with you that it's going to be very difficult and there are these ideological challenges um, that that will arise. And of course, the hospitals are going to be there fighting the whole way to keep these laws on the books. So, you know, there's a multi-pronged approach, of course, continuing to look for litigation opportunities, hoping to get courts to strike parts of these programs down or strike these programs down completely in some states, that would be very, very important and go a long way, I think. 
to showing lawmakers why um, why they can feel confident in repealing these laws. Um, and then, uh, yeah, continuing to educate lawmakers, you're absolutely right about that, and looking for opportunities in states that might be friendly to either doing what Florida's doing, you're right, um, getting rid of the majority of their con laws or going for full repeal. But it's, it's gonna be a hard battle anywhere. Now, um, I know from a reliable source that we have many legislators and people from the, uh, the governor's office that listen to the show. So uh, hopefully uh, we've helped to change some minds or inform some people. If I, were, if I knew the legislature was listening to this uh, episode, where would they go for information? I, you're, I found your report very, very interesting. Are there other resources to uh, educate uh, legislators on the merits or uh, problems with con laws? How, did, how would someone get smart on this topic quickly? I would say the Mercatus Center out of George Mason University has a wealth of knowledge about the policy problems with certificate of need or DOM laws. So if if that's the type of education that someone needs, that would be the place to go for that. Um, Institute for Justice is happy to help anyone that wants more specific information um, about, about their specific laws. So in Massachusetts or in any state, we're happy to provide tailored um, feedback or research about specific laws so you can get in contact with me or anyone at IJ for help with that. And so we know incumbents are powerful. You know, we have big hospitals with deep pockets and they can advocate for their position, anti-competitive. Uh, when you represent as an advocacy group, uh, a plaintiff, um, where, from what ranks do those plaintiffs come? I mean, you know, liberty and markets and competition don't really have a, uh, a spokesperson, right? You have to have somebody who wants to enter the market and who can't by virtue of these uh, laws. Uh, what kind of, what's the profile of, of someone you want to work with that could, uh, in a sense, help you challenge uh, the, the law? So our clients are usually entrepreneurs or have an entrepreneurial spirit. So I mentioned our Kentucky clients earlier, um, and one of the clients is, there is a CPA, and he said, you know, I came to America, I was able to get my master's in accounting, I opened a CPA firm. No one, he said, I didn't have to get a certificate of need to become, a, to open a CPA firm, to practice, you know, to be an accountant. So he just said, I am so shocked that this is what you have to do in America to provide this type of service, you know, open a very small home health agency. Um, and so, but he says his goal in bringing this case isn't just to get his certificate of need, his piece of paper that says he can do what he wants to do. His goal is to change the law for everyone. You know, he's fighting on principle and that is the exact type of person that IJ looks for that we would love to represent. And universally our clients on their own come to us and have that type of spirit already. And it's, it's always wonderful and amazing to find these people. And there's so many of them out there and yeah, That's they're right. really inspiring. Yeah, that's, that, that's wonderful to hear. Josh, um, do, uh, you painted a fairly dim picture of, of the prospects for, for uh, reform, and yet there was a relaxation of these Don laws for COVID. Are there friends of, uh, I guess, competition uh, on Beacon Hill? Is there uh, someone who can help move the ball down the field on this? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the greatest opportunity is the business community uh, in many states, including here in Massachusetts. You know, for years, businesses have been saying the number one issue they have is healthcare costs in the Commonwealth. And so for them, they need to articulate to legislators and connect the dots to say a lack of price transparency, a lack of, you know, an easy process for innovators to enter the market is harming us and our ability to keep our doors open, to hire new workers, create new jobs. I I think there's an opportunity there. I do want to highlight and ask Jamie to talk a little bit about this. I think in their conclusion of their report, they do a nice job in which to say, yes, repeal is ideal, but there's also some other options here. And I do think, you know, Governor Baker and the Department of Public Health, when he first came into office, did change some of the thresholds by which determination of need kicks in. And so there are a few different levers. So I may be a tad more optimistic that maybe one of those levers gets changed versus a full repeal in a state like Massachusetts. So, Jamie, could you talk to us a little bit about what are those levers that state legislators have that they could maybe push up and down instead of if full repeal is not possible? Yeah, a great example is setting capital expenditure requirements. So in some states like Alaska, you see that um, healthcare providers don't have to apply for a CON or a DON until they're going to spend over a certain amount of money. Now, some states impose really low capital expenditure requirements, so you're still running in and applying for CONs all the time. But Alaska's expenditure requirement is something like $1.5 million. So that gives um, flexibility to providers to, you know, add equipment, add services without having to run back to the department constantly and um, go through this whole long process. But there's other things that can be done, like lowering application fees, speeding up the process, um, you know, cutting down on the paperwork. Um, even though it's great that the DON process is going through an expedite expedited application right now, you know, we would say, why are you asking providers to do any paperwork right now? They're responding to a pandemic, a public health crisis. They shouldn't be doing any paperwork at all. They should be prioritizing patients right now. So, you know, cutting down any of these red tape barriers would be great. Um, Preventing competitors' vetoes is another step that that states could do. Um, just, Just keeping competitors out of the process altogether. That would be a huge step. Michigan and some other states have done that. I think Nebraska as well. Um, keeping competitors out, their voice isn't shouldn't be important in the process if the government truly just cares about whether or not this service is you know safe for the community and needed in the community. The competitors' voice about you know how it might affect their bottom line shouldn't be that important. It's hard to find a silver lining with COVID-19, but I would say it has exposed many of the weaknesses in our healthcare system. Uh, and if there is a silver lining, it seems the innovation uh, in the American economy seems to be what's uh, helping us get through this. Uh, anything that promotes innovation and competition and, uh, and change is going to be good for the long term. So uh, thank you for joining us on the show today, Jamie. Uh, you've uh, given us a lot of information and some good ideas on how we can make what we think is a great system here in Massachusetts a heck of a lot better. Thanks, this was fun. Okay, we're back. This is Joe Salvaggi, and I'm joined by by Josh Archambault from Pioneer Institute. What did you think of what uh, Jamie had to say, Josh? 
You know, Joe, I was just a reminder that from her, you know, sometimes when we're studying things in Massachusetts in one state, you lose context. You're not always sure how your state compares to others. And I think when we heard her talking a little bit about Massachusetts of having 22 different uh, determination of need processes and all categories of them, you start to realize that we are a very regulation heavy state when it comes to healthcare. And that does lead to higher costs for us. It's just a matter of fact. Uh, And so I'm hoping that when listeners listen to this, that they, whether they reach out to a representative or whether they work for a small employer who's part of an association here in the state, that they start to connect the dots on some of these issues on, we constantly complain about high healthcare costs, but the reasons we have them, we don't push our legislators to actually address and change. So that's what I'm hoping comes out of this. And I think she put a really good perspective on how robust our system is and the negative impacts that can come of that. Yes, I think um, uh, she touched a few big points with me, uh, but really resonated. Towards the end, she said, look, um, everyone pays the high cost of healthcare, right? Uh, So whereas we're very satisfied with the quality of our care, what we perceive to be the quality of our care, all of us are paying the price for a constraint in competition, right? We could get more for less. Uh, And I think that message came through loud and clear. Uh, And I have to believe, unless you own the hospital, uh, this is a very appealing message. Yeah, I think the other thing that resonated was the story of her clients in Kentucky. I mean, we often don't think about whether it's um, low-income communities or immigrant communities. There are different healthcare needs, and the ability to be able to meet those needs can't always be met by large, huge systems. And yet it's those same large, huge systems that have lawyers to fight entrepreneurs opening in those communities. That's a very tangible thing that I would think a lot of legislators in Massachusetts should be aware of and realize that what their current structure has prevents that. Yes, uh, I I was intrigued. Uh, The uh, uh, Nepalese-speaking healthcare center is what the market required and the regulation where it's one size fits all uh, didn't meet that need. So markets know what people want. What an idea. What do you think about that, Josh? <laughs> we need more of that in healthcare for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us today uh, for another episode of Hubwonk. This has been an episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. I'm Joe Salvaggi, your host. If you enjoyed this show, there are three ways you can support us. You can give us a five-star rating, you can offer a review, or you can share it with friends. If you'd like to contact me with ideas or comments about future shows, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join us next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.